Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for its continued support of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Did you know that your internet service provider, like Comcast or Verizon, knows every single website you visit? Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash gold, and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription. Well, today, the U.S. stock market finally broke a four-day winning streak. So this was the first decline in five days. That winning streak had been powered by some renewed hopes that the president and Congress would come to some type of agreement on a stimulus package. But today, the markets were focused on the news announcement that came out overnight that Johnson & Johnson had paused its phase three trials for its COVID vaccine. And so anything that delays a vaccine is a negative for the global economy because the vaccine is what is hoped will allow a return to normal. Once there's a vaccine, well, then people will be less fearful of contracting COVID and they're more likely to go out and travel and and do all sorts of things. And governments can relax a lot of the restrictions if they know that people are now immune and they were not going to catch COVID. So this caused the market to sell off, although the sell-off was mainly confined to those companies that are actually involved in the real economy like oil stocks, for example, were among the hardest hit. Why? Well, because if the return to normal 
uh, is delayed due to uh, a vaccine taking longer to develop, well, it'll, people won't go back to traveling as much. They won't fly as much. They won't drive as much. Therefore, they won't use as much oil. And so that was pushing down those stocks. Of course, the opposite is true for all the stay-at-home COVID play type stocks like Netflix, right, which benefit, or Amazon. Uh, these are the companies that are the winners in the stay-at-home economy. And so those stocks are going up. And of course, those are the biggest companies. A lot of these tech companies, they are way overrepresented. They're waiting in the market. And so when these companies go up, it has a much bigger impact on the overall uh, averages than the more industrial type companies that have a lower weighting and therefore have less influence on the market. Of course, gold sold off too, and the dollar rose. The dollar had a strong day today. For some reason, traders now believe that anything that delays a uh, vaccine is bullish for the dollar. And I think that rationale for that is that if the economy is bad, then people will rush into the dollar as a safe haven. But I don't really see that. I mean, I know that in the initial uh, weeks back in March, when everything was falling apart, people did rush into the dollar at that time, but they're not rushing into the dollar now. I mean, yes, they bought the dollar today based on the anticipation that people will rush into the dollar, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're far more likely to rush into gold, uh, which they didn't do today. Gold was down. What was interesting, though, is despite the decline in the price of gold, and gold wasn't down all that much. Gold was down about $30 an ounce, you know, back below 1900 I think 1892 But gold stocks actually held up pretty well. They were down quite a bit early in the morning, but they paired their losses. And GDX was only down 1% on the day. GDXJ down 1.65. Normally, you would expect bigger declines on a day where the price of gold was down 1.6%. In fact, gold stocks, the major gold stocks, were actually down less on a percentage basis than was gold itself. And most gold stocks closed near their highs of the day. Uh, so they recovered nicely throughout the day, even though the price of gold didn't recover at all and pretty much stayed down at that low level. But again, this was based on the false idea that delaying the recovery is bullish for the dollar and bearish for gold. When in fact, the opposite is true, because anything that delays the recovery means that we're going to get bigger stimulus because of a weaker economy. The bigger stimulus means bigger budget deficits, more borrowing, more money printing, more inflation. All of those things are bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. The longer it takes for us to get a COVID vaccine, the more money we're going to borrow, the more money the Fed is going to print to monetize all that borrowing. So I don't understand why the markets haven't figured this out yet, but they will. This scenario is bullish for gold regardless. Now, I'm hearing people on Wall Street say that if we have a vaccine that comes sooner than expected, then that's bad for the dollar and that's good for gold. Because the idea is, well, if the economies return to normal, 
then there will be less of an interest in seeking out dollars as a safe haven. And so the dollar will fall as foreigners no longer need to hold dollars as a safe haven, and that will be good for gold. But again, this misses the point that more and more foreigners are going to figure out that the dollar is not a safe haven. And the longer the recession continues and the deeper it gets because of the inability to come up with a vaccine, the more likely it is that foreigners realize that there's no safety in the dollar and that they dump dollars in favor of gold. We also got some economic news that came out today. We got the Consumer Price Index for the month of September, and the numbers were pretty much exactly what was expected, at least the headline numbers. They were looking for the increase in the CPI month over month to be 0.2, and that's exactly what it was. They were looking for the year-over-year increase to be 1.4. And again, that's exactly what we got. The core rate, again, month over month, they were looking for a gain of 0.2. We got a gain of 0.2. And both of these numbers were half of the 0.4% increases from the prior month for both month over month and year over year. The only number that came out slightly below was the year over year core, which was supposed to be up 1.8 and instead came out up 1.7, which matched the gain from the prior month. And of course, all this is supposedly great news for the Fed because it means they can keep the monetary pedal to the metal because inflation is still below 2%. And after all, their goal is to get it above 2%, and they're not even at 2%. So they've got a long way to go to achieving their goal, which means they can keep rates at zero and keep on printing money. Except when you look beneath the surface, you actually see what's going on, at least with respect to some prices, in particular, used cars. The price of used cars was up by the most in about 50 years. 6.7% increase in the month. And this is the biggest monthly gain since February of 1969. And this increase comes on top of the 5.4% gain in the month of August and the 2.3% gain in the month of July. So in other words, you're looking at a pretty substantial jump in used car prices over the past three months. Now, why is this happening? Well, it's happening for a lot of the reasons that I explained when everybody was talking about how uh, the COVID situation was deflationary because it was diminishing demand. I said that it is an inflationary event because it is diminishing supply. And that is exactly what's happening in the automobile market. Now, yes, I mean, part of the increased demand for cars is that there are people who no longer want to take public transportation. And so maybe they're buying cars because they're not going to take the bus or the subway. And some of that may be going on. But remember, a lot of people are now working from home. And if you're working from home, you didn't have to take a car, bus, or a subway. And in fact, I think the number of people working from home, that would be diminishing the demand for cars because maybe they don't need a new car. Maybe they can make do with their old car because they're not driving as much. And so they're not wearing it down as much. So I would say at best, it's a push on the demand side, right? I don't think it's demand for cars that is driving the increase. Yes, I can see some circumstances where people 
might want a car that didn't have one. But I can also see a lot of examples where I think people that have cars no longer need them. Or maybe they had two cars and now they, they can probably get by with one uh, because uh, people aren't commuting back and forth to work. What I think is the stronger factor is the reduction in the supply of new cars. That's what's going on. A lot of these factories all around the world were shut down uh, due to COVID, either because the automobile factories were shut down or the parts manufacturers were shut down. And so the automobile manufacturers couldn't get their parts because there was a backlog of orders. And so the production of new cars slowed down. Therefore, there weren't as many new cars to compete with the supply of used cars. And I also think what's happening too is since there is such a minimal supply of new cars, the dealerships that have the new cars, well, they're pretty firm on the sticker price, right? They're not as willing to cut deals when they don't have a lot of uh, merchandise to sell. So they're probably selling the new cars for a lot closer to sticker. Maybe in some cases they're getting above the sticker price. Uh, because there's a lot of demand for the new cars. And so that is taking pressure off of used cars. And so it is a reduction in supply that is causing the price of cars to rise, even if on aggregate, the total demand for cars is actually lower since the supply has fallen by more than the demand, the price is going up. And that is the phenomenon that we're going to see, I think, throughout the US. And in fact, even if you look at, the CPI, you'll already see that it's the goods prices, right? Things, actual things, those prices are moving higher. It's the services that are still under pressure. And those higher goods prices, of course, are reflected in the largest trade deficit in goods that we've ever had in U.S. history that was reported last month. And that record is probably going to get broken uh, next month. Uh, and the month after that, it'll get broken again because we're having to import the stuff that we don't make. And a lot of that imported stuff is going to be getting a lot more expensive. Now, where I do think you're going to see a change is with services. I do think we're going to start to see an increase in the price of services. Some of those increases may have not happened yet due to the reduction in demand. But I do believe that when the service providers have an opportunity to really reduce the capacity in the service industry where there are far fewer people actually providing the services for which there is now less demand, I think the price of those services is also going to go way up. It's just that service prices are likely to lag goods prices, which is why we're seeing uh, the goods prices moving up uh, quicker now uh, while you still have uh, the service prices under some pressure. But all of that is going to change. Also, if you look at what's happening with housing, rents have been falling, and that has been putting some downward pressure on the CPI. And of course, you know, why would rents be falling? A lot of people are trying to move out of the apartments where there's a lot of rentals. Uh, a lot of people aren't even paying their rents. So the landlords are under a lot of pressure now uh, to get a tenant, and they're probably giving concessions. But what the CPI is not evidencing is the big increase in the cost to buy a house. House prices are rising. They're rising sharply right now. So if you want to buy a house, the cost of doing that is going up. But those prices are not reflected in the CPI, only the rents. 
And of course, a good part of rent is owner's equivalent rent. And, you know, you never really figure out how they get that. But you can rest assured that the formula uh, understates uh, the increase in rental prices or it it, it reduces uh, what that increase would be. So we're not getting the real story of what's happening in the housing market in the CPI. But I think the most interesting aspect of the stock market is the fact that it seems like investors have now fully uh, conceded the fact that it's going to be a blue wave in November, that Donald Trump is going to lose, that Joe Biden is going to be the next president, and that the Republicans are also going to lose the U.S. Senate. Now, I don't know, six months ago, you know, this was not the case. Most people were convinced that the president would win a second term and that the Republicans would retain control of the Senate. And what I've been saying on my podcast for many, many months is that I believed that at some point the stock market would have to sell off to begin to discount the high probability that that would not happen, that Biden was going to win and that the Democrats might even get the Senate. And so I had been waiting for a stock market sell-off because I was waiting for the market to realize what I had figured out a long time ago, which was that Trump was not going to win. And I'm not saying it's impossible for Trump to win. I mean, anything is possible, but I think it's highly improbable. Yes, I know that he was behind in the polls uh, four years ago, but he was behind by less than he's behind now. So he's an even bigger long shot. If you look at the polls and the betting markets, he's a bigger long shot now than he was four years ago. But again, four years ago, he was the outsider promising to drain the swamp and make America great again. Uh, That's not the situation today. I mean, he can pretend he's the outsider, but he's been inside for four years and he's failed to deliver on any of his promises. You know, the most stark reminder is the biggest trade deficits in U.S. history I mean, that was a signature issue of Trump's campaign. He was going to make America great again by improving our trade. We were going to win on trade instead of losing. Well, now we're losing bigger than ever before. And that's just one example of Trump's failures. But the people who took a shot at Trump, why would they take that shot again? I mean, it didn't work. Nothing changed. Their lives have not really improved. Uh, I think that when voters are dissatisfied, the inclination is to throw the bums out, whichever bums happen to be in. doesn't matter if they're replacing them with a different set of bums. It's that, hey, we want to get rid of the bums we have. The fact that our only choice is to elect a different bum, well, I mean, that's what we're going to have to do, right? Because that's unfortunately the only choice that we have. And so I think that a lot of these swing voters who voted for Trump last time are going to vote for Biden this time for the same reason they voted for Trump last time. So I don't think we're going to have this big surprise uh, that we had four years ago. But now that investors have come to this realization, right, they no longer expect Trump to get reelected. They've pretty much accepted the fact that he's going to lose. So if he wins, it'll be a pleasant surprise. But if he loses, the market's already positioned. And I'm actually hearing a lot on the news that, This is supposed to be bullish for stocks. Now, of course, Wall Street 
as far as they're concerned, everything is bullish for stocks, right? So they're going to spin anything that they get, right? When they get lemons, they're going to make lemonade. And so they've found a way to spin a Biden win into a positive. Now, of course, when they thought Trump was going to win, that was a positive, right? But now that they think he's going to lose, well, it's still a positive. And the rationale for a Biden victory being a positive is basically the bad news is good news uh, mantra, which we've had, right? Bad news for the economy is good news for the market. Why? Because bad news for the economy means more stimulus. It means we have bigger budget deficits. We have interest rates lower for longer. We have more QE. And that is what's been driving the stock market. That's been the only thing that's been driving the stock market. So what's bad for Main Street is good for Wall Street. And so a Biden victory, which is clearly bad for Main Street, a Biden victory means a weaker economy. Well, then that's good news for the stock market because it means even more stimulus. The budget deficits will be even bigger. Even more money will be printed. Rates will be even lower for even longer. And so the party will continue under Biden. And of course, what the stock market has to overlook too is the impact of the tax hikes. Because when Trump cut taxes, that was one of the reasons for the early gain in the U.S. stock market. Eventually, it became about the Fed and QE. But the rally that began on the night of the elections, after the initial sell-off when Trump won, and you got that sell-off, and then all of a sudden you got the beginning of a rally that lasted for well over a year. Um, In fact, it really lasted until the fourth quarter of 2018. That rally was about the impact of the tax cuts on corporate earnings and the fact that lower corporate taxes meant that corporations were now more valuable because they were earning more money. And the way you value a company is you take the present value of their future after-tax earnings. And so when you reduce taxes, you automatically increase after-tax earnings, and that means the stock now has a higher value. And so that was a big rationale behind that rally. Well, if we're going to undo that, well, then the stock market needs to fall to reflect the fact that earnings are going to be diminished by higher taxes. And they're going to be diminished in a much bigger way than they were uh, improved by the tax cuts because the tax hikes are much bigger, right? The percent by which Biden wants to raise taxes is much bigger than the percent that Trump cut them. And of course, whenever I hear people discussing the increase in taxes, you know, the corporate tax rate, I don't hear anybody discussing the fact that Biden has proposed imposing the payroll tax, the Social Security payroll tax on incomes and not just on earned incomes, but on stock dividends and capital gains. So that means when you add the payroll tax to the increase in the income tax, the effective increase in both income and capital gains taxes is much larger than what the media is discussing, especially when you look at the impact on corporate earnings from the perspective of the shareholder who is double taxed. He's being taxed once at the corporate level 
when the company he owns pays a higher tax on its income, and then he himself pays an even higher tax on the income that he receives in form of dividends or capital gains. So these are enormous tax hikes that are being proposed that dwarf the magnitude of the tax cuts. In addition, earnings are going to go down. One of the arguments early in the Trump rally was that lower taxes was good for the economy and that corporations were not just going to pay a lower tax on their earnings, but because all their customers paid lower taxes, other companies would be able to earn more money. After all, what you don't pay taxes, you have more money to invest and spend. And so businesses were going to benefit from the stronger economy that would result from lower taxes. And so not only would businesses have a lower tax rate, but they would pay those lower taxes on even higher pre-tax earnings, right? So all this was bullish. Well, now that story works in reverse. Higher taxes and a weaker economy are going to reduce pre-tax corporate earnings. So companies are going to earn less, and then they're going to pay a much bigger tax on those diminished earnings. So the actual after-tax earnings of U.S. companies is going to implode. Now, under normal circumstances, this would be seen as extremely bearish for the U.S. stock market. So why isn't it? Well, obviously, one reason is no one on Wall Street has an incentive to be bearish. So why are they going to tell their customers that, you know, don't buy stocks, the stock market's going to go down? I mean, they're going to put a bullish spin on everything. But what they expect to happen is that the positive impact of the stimulus, they expect that to offset the negative impact of falling earnings, right? Because they don't think it's going to be about earnings, right? It's not going to matter that corporate earnings are way down. And in fact, if corporate earnings decline completely, if corporations go from earning money to losing money, then the tax hikes are immaterial because taxes only tax earnings. If you don't have any earnings, if you're losing money, and a lot of companies will lose money, well, that doesn't matter what the tax rate is because they're not going to pay any. They're going to pay zero. But what investors are saying is, hey, the earnings are secondary because they're trumped by the stimulus. And so if the economy is really weak and earnings are crashing, we're going to get all this money printing. We're going to get much more stimulus than we would have got under Trump because the economy wouldn't be as bad under Trump because it's going to be so much worse under Biden. The Fed's going to print so much more money. Therefore, it's going to be an even bigger stock market bubble. So we want to buy stocks because of how bad the economy is going to get, right? The worse it is on Main Street, the better it is on Wall Street. And because, hey, if things are that bad, they're going to keep doing more and more stimulus. And if the stimulus actually makes everything worse, that just means that we're going to get even more of it, right? Because they do stimulus, it makes the economy weaker. So now they got to do even more stimulus. And now the economy gets weaker still. And so they do even bigger stimulus and they just continue to do that. And all the while, the stock market is supposedly going to benefit from all this money printing. And you know what? I guess it's possible but I have a feeling that it's not going to go down that way. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I think that once we actually get Biden winning, the market's going to sell off, right? Because I think at that point, people are going to reassess this view, right? Once the reality sets in, okay, Biden is president, is it really so good for stocks? Is the idea that a really bad economy with collapsing corporate earnings, is this really so positive for stocks because we got the Fed? Especially when the stock market is already so overvalued. I mean, maybe if the stock market were really cheap based on historical averages, you know, maybe you could make that argument that the stimulus would help. But if the stimulus of the past has already resulted in a historically overpriced U.S. stock market, I mean, is additional stimulus at this point really going to keep this thing going? Maybe we're overdosing. Maybe that's it. Maybe all the benefits of the future stimulus have already been discounted into the current stock price. So I would expect the opposite to happen uh, that we had in 2016. Maybe we get an initial rise on a Biden win or even a Trump win. If Trump surprises the markets, uh, we could get a rally there too. Uh, But I think that will be short-lived. And I think the market is going to move down rather substantially after the election is over. Uh, even if we don't know the the exact results. But I have a feeling that we'll have a pretty good idea of who the winner will be, even if the loser is contesting uh, the results. But I think that the markets are going to uh, reverse any pre-election gain. Now, of course, this could be different if the market now starts to tank between now and the election. Uh, But if it continues uh, to hold up based on the view that a Biden victory and a Democratic sweep is actually a good thing, then when the good thing becomes a reality, I think the markets will actually start to focus on how bad that good thing actually is, and we will get a decline. Now, again, I don't think the decline will continue indefinitely. I don't think we'll have a massive crash because, of course, the Federal Reserve will respond to any big drop in the stock market by immediately uh, launching more quantitative easing and put some type of nominal floor beneath the market. But of course, that floor is going to act like a launching pad uh, for the gold market. Gold is going to go through the roof and the dollar is going to go through the floor. Now, according to recent reports, hackers can make up to $1,000 from selling someone's personal information on the dark web, making people like me and you easy, lucrative targets. ExpressVPN is an app for your computer and phone that secures and encrypts your data so you can have peace of mind every time you go online. The app connects with just one click, it's lightning fast, and the best part is ExpressVPN costs less than seven bucks a month. Listen, if a breach can happen to Capital One, it can easily happen to any individual like you or me. So protect yourself with ExpressVPN. It's rated number one by Wired, CNET, The Verge, and countless others, and it's the VPN that I use myself. In fact, one of the most convenient aspects for me, especially so since I'm going to be back in Puerto Rico within a couple of weeks, is there's a lot of content that I can't necessarily access from Puerto Rico, but if I'm using ExpressVPN and I can fool the website into believing that I'm not in Puerto Rico, that I'm in the States, then I can still have access to content that might otherwise be unavailable based on my Puerto Rico location. So you can use my special link, expressvpn.com gold, 
right now and arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash gold and get three months extra for free. But even more frustrating than watching the pundits on CNBC talk about the economy and the markets is watching some of the confirmation hearings uh, with the Senate Judiciary Committee and, and Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, for the first thing that comes to my mind as I'm listening to these senators is none of these guys or gals knows anything about the U.S. Constitution. And, you know, you would think that they would because they all swear an oath to support and defend it, you know, from all enemies, domestic and foreign. That's, you know, to be a senator, right, you got to swear this oath. You would think that they understood the document that they were swearing an oath to, but they're completely clueless. And it's not like the Constitution is very difficult to understand. It's actually a very easy document to understand. The problem is if you understand it, it pretty much makes illegal almost everything the government already does. I'm talking about the federal government and everything that the federal government wants to do. That's the reason that so many people uh, have to pretend that they don't understand it because they don't like what it says. In fact, they like to describe two schools of constitutional thought, right? There, there are people who want to uh, interpret the Constitution based on the original intent of the people who wrote it, right? And then there's another group of people that say, hey, let's interpret the Constitution based on what we, what we want it to mean, right? That the Constitution is some kind of living, breathing document that evolves over time, and so it means whatever we want it to mean. So the actual words that are written on the Constitution don't mean anything because we could just impart whatever meaning we want into those words and, and therefore we can change the Constitution, which of course in and of itself is complete nonsense. I mean, first of all, how can a law change over time based on interpretation? Then it wouldn't even be a law. I mean, to say that we're going to read a law in anything other than the intent of the people who wrote it, I mean, how could that even be a theory? I mean, first of all, you know, the Constitution doesn't have to be interpreted. I mean, it's not written in Chinese. And the fact that the founding fathers meant the Constitution to mean what it says, to not be this living, breathing document that changes over time, is the fact that they establish a process to amend the Constitution. So if you don't like something in the Constitution— if you want to change something in the Constitution, then amend it. I mean, if the Constitution just evolved over time and it meant whatever you wanted it to mean, then what would be the purpose of having to amend it? And we have amended the Constitution. They wanted to tax income without regard to apportionment. They wanted a direct tax on income. Supreme Court says you can't do that. So they amended the Constitution in order to change it because the Constitution didn't authorize that tax. They wanted to prohibit alcohol. They wanted prohibition. There was nothing in the Constitution that specifically said that you could prohibit alcohol, so they had to amend the Constitution, right? Why didn't they just say, oh, you know, it just, just interpret the Constitution to allow that to happen? Because they had respect for the Constitution back then. They knew that the Constitution meant what it said, and if the Constitution didn't specifically say the government could do something, it couldn't do it. And if they wanted to do it, they had to amend the Constitution, which is what they did. But nobody amends it anymore, right? The government just does whatever it wants. And, you know, 
the the best way for you to understand the Constitution, and I've talked about this in some podcasts before, but given what's going on uh, with the Supreme Court now, I think it's time to uh, speak about it again. So it might be a bit repetitious if you've heard me speak about it in the past, but I have a lot of new listeners that may not have heard me talk about the Constitution. But the best way to understand the simplicity of the Constitution is to read the Constitution itself and to read the words of the people who wrote it, right? So first of all, the father of the Constitution is James Madison. He's considered the father of the Constitution, was a president of the United States, uh, but he is one of the contributors to the Federalist Papers. And the Federalist Papers were a group of papers that were written by the founding fathers to explain the Constitution to people of New York so that they would ratify it, right? Because people didn't really know what the Constitution uh, did or what type of government it created. And so these uh, articles were written in order to basically persuade uh, people in New York that, hey, the Constitution was a good idea. And this is what James Madison wrote about the Constitution. He wrote, the powers delegated by the Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Few and defined. Now, how many people would think about our federal government and say, yeah, the powers are few and defined? I mean, they do almost everything, but they're not supposed to do everything. Their powers are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised primarily on external objects as war and peace, negotiations and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. So in other words, what James Madison is saying is the federal government has few and defined powers and mostly having to do with external matters, war and peace and stuff like that. And that's what taxes are going to be for. So to the extent that the federal government is going to tax you, it's going to be to pay for the military. That's basically it. All the normal domestic issues are going to be taken care of by the states. Does that sound like the United States today? No, the federal government does everything, right? Now, if you actually look at the Tenth Amendment, too, that helps you understand how the Constitution was written, right? The Tenth Amendment says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. In other words, the federal government can only do what the Constitution specifically says it can do. That's why Madison said the powers are few and defined. Because the only powers the federal government has is those few powers that are defined and expressly granted to it in the Constitution. However, the states, they can do anything as long as the power is not denied to them by the states. Now, that doesn't mean the states were all powerful because every state was limited by its own constitution, right? So the people were protected in the states by the state constitutions, but then the federal constitution said, here are some things that no state can do, regardless of whether or not it's authorized by its own constitution, we're going to ban it at the federal level. But other than that, the state can do whatever it wants, so long as it's not prohibited from doing so in its own constitution. So where are the uh, few and defined federal powers expressed? Well, they're all in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. That's it. So grab yourself a constitution if you don't have one. I mean, they're on the internet. You can just look one up and you can look at it. It's not a big section. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of words there. In fact, I'll just read again 
all of the powers the federal government has. And remember, if I don't read it, if the power is not on this list, it can't do it. That means anything the federal government does that is not enumerated in Article 1, Section 8 is unconstitutional. And see, this is why these hearings are so ridiculous, because Amy Coney Barrett can't admit right, that almost everything the government is now doing is unconstitutional. Right? That's why she doesn't really want to comment on a lot of these cases or a lot of these questions, because I think she's smart enough to know that most of what the government is doing is unconstitutional. But one of the things that she is reassuring everybody is that she will respect precedent, which is unfortunate. What she's saying basically is, look, even if there's a lot of poorly decided cases where things that were clearly unconstitutional were ruled to be constitutional by a court that ignored the Constitution and instead adopted this idea that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, and it doesn't matter what the framers actually intended, what they wrote, when they wrote it, we're just going to let Congress do whatever we think is right, and we're just going to change the Constitution from the bench, right? They're going to be judicial activists and rewrite the Constitution to serve uh, the current political agenda of the powers that be, right? What Amy Coney Barrett is saying is, look, even if these uh, bad decisions happened, they're precedent, and I'm just going to respect that precedent, which is unfortunate. I mean, I don't want justices to respect bad precedent. But of course, if she said she wasn't, I mean, they wouldn't confirm her because she'd have to declare almost everything the federal government is doing unconstitutional, which would be a great thing because all this unconstitutional stuff is actually really bad, except the government doesn't know that. They actually think this stuff is good. But just because you think a program is going to do good doesn't mean you ignore the Constitution uh, so that it can stand. You're supposed to ignore your personal opinions as to whether or not you think the law is going to do good or bad and just decide whether or not the law is constitutional. And if the law is a good law, but it's unconstitutional, then Congress needs to change the Constitution so that it can now do this good thing that the Constitution does not authorize them to do, except that's very difficult. A lot of these laws, a lot of these programs and taxes that politicians think are good, I don't think there's any way they would get a constitutional amendment to authorize them. So by having the Supreme Court amend the Constitution on its own without the legislative process being required, uh, that makes it a lot easier for Congress and the presidents to get these big government programs that are clearly unconstitutional to get them enacted into law. But let me go back and look at Article 1, Section 8, right? The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, and imposts and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. So this gives uh, the Congress the power to tax, but they can only do it to provide for the common defense and the general welfare. Right? The general welfare means for the welfare of everybody, not for the specific welfare of one individual, but for the general welfare of everybody. Right, And it also says they can lay taxes to pay the debts of the United States. They can't tax us to pay the debts of other countries. They can't tax us to pay the debts 
of state governments or municipal governments or students or corporations. They can only tax us to pay the debts of the United States, right? Because that's what it says in the Constitution. Then it says that they have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, right? So the federal government can borrow money. Nowhere in Article 1, Section 8 does it say the federal government can lend money. Nowhere in here does it say they can guarantee the debts of other borrowers. So all that stuff is unconstitutional because it's not authorized by the Constitution to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. That is a very, very simple uh, power that has been massively abused by the courts. And I'll give you an example of that. But first of all, this is called the Commerce Clause. Congress can regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and Indian tribes. What does that mean? They can regulate the commerce, right? That is the trade. Those are the transactions. So if two businesses are located in different states and they are transacting with one another, Congress can regulate that transaction itself, the flow of goods over borders and, you know, over international borders and to the Indian tribes. But what this has been interpreted to mean, in other words, the courts have changed the meaning of this clause to basically say that it gives Congress the authority to regulate the companies that engage in individual commerce, not just the commerce itself, but any company that engages in commerce, which clearly is not the intent of this regulation. Because if they could just regulate any business that engages in commerce, well, that's everybody. And there'd be no limit to the things that they can regulate. I mean, that would be an indefined power. If you just gave somebody the blanket power, hey, Congress can regulate every business, every entity that engages in commerce. And, you know, initially it started off at interstate commerce. You can go back and you can look, and I forget the citations of a lot of these court cases, but the initial court case, and I'm talking about, excuse me, the minimum wage, right? The minimum wage is a perfect example because the constitutionality of the minimum wage supposedly rests in the Commerce Clause, right? Because Congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce. Supposedly, that gives them the right to impose a nationwide minimum wage. Now, you might think, well, how? How could you get that stretch? Because first of all, if Congress could uh, have a minimum wage, it should be enumerated in Article 1, Section 8. It should say Congress can set wages. Congress can set a minimum wage. That's not there. So they don't have the authority to do that. But somehow the court said that that authority is contained in the ability to regulate interstate commerce. Well, how did they get there? Because that the wages that you're paying your workers has nothing to do with the actual commerce. Right there, you're regulating the business itself, not the commerce. Well, the initial case that went up to the Supreme Court involved the business that actually was engaged in interstate commerce. They had customers in other states or they, you know, they were going across the border. And, and so what they said is, well, it's constitutional because you're engaged in interstate commerce. And because you're engaged in interstate commerce, then the federal government has the ability to, to regulate you. Now, that's not true. The regulation or the ability to regulate is limited to the commerce itself Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the government can regulate the businesses that engage in commerce. They can only regulate the commerce. But the Supreme Court stretched the Constitution to say that that included the ability to regulate the businesses themselves. 
But supposedly, as a result of that decision, that only applied to the businesses that were actively engaged in interstate commerce, which meant that the businesses that were not engaged in interstate commerce, well, they didn't have to abide by the federal minimum wage. Well, then another court case came because a company that didn't do any interstate commerce, they said, hey, we're not engaged in interstate commerce, so the minimum wage doesn't apply to us. And then what happened is the government said, well, do you use any products that were uh, brought in from out of state? For example, I don't remember what the business was, but let's say it was a restaurant and some of the food on the menu, maybe the butter that they that they served with the bread, maybe they bought the butter from a, a dairy that was over the border, right? And they said, well, because you were involved in interstate commerce at some level, then you fall within the ability of the U.S. government to regulate you, which of course seems like pure nonsense, but then they stretched it. The court said, you know, the business itself doesn't have to engage in interstate commerce, but if anything you use in your business was interstate commerce, well, now we can regulate you. So the government had to rely on the commerce clause in order to set a minimum wage because clearly there's nothing in the Constitution that says that they can have a minimum wage. The only thing they can hang their hat on is this Commerce Clause. So the ability to enforce a federal minimum wage always had to be brought back to the Commerce Clause. But to say that just because a restaurant used butter that was made in an out-of-state dairy, that that restaurant is now engaging in interstate commerce when all of its customers you know, live in the same state as the restaurant, that is absurd. But then they, they stretched the absurdity even greater because I remember there was a case and this was a farm, right? A guy owned a farm and everything he grew was local and everything he sold was local, right? So there was no way that you could claim that he was in any way engaged in interstate commerce, right? Because he was just running a local farm, growing everything himself, right? And then selling everything locally, nothing uh, from out of state. And so you figure, okay, this guy is going to win. This guy doesn't have to abide by the minimum wage. And here's what the government said. And the court blessed this. And I'm not making this up. So the government said, well, you're a farmer and you have decided not to engage in interstate commerce. And your decision not to engage in interstate commerce affects interstate commerce, right? Because since you're not engaging in the commerce, it has an effect on other people, right? Because now maybe other people's decisions have been impacted by your unwillingness to engage in interstate commerce. So maybe somebody who would have bought something from out of state instead bought something from this state. I forget the exact words, but it ended up being that now Congress can regulate businesses even that don't engage in interstate commerce if they believe their failure to engage in interstate commerce affects interstate commerce. So in other words, this little commerce clause, according to the Supreme Court, basically grants an unlimited amount of power to the U.S. government to regulate anybody it wants, any industry it wants, any business it wants, any person it wants, right? whether they engage in commerce or not. And the, the ability to regulate is open-ended. They can put any regulation they want. I mean, how could this be? Do, do you think that the Constitution would have been ratified 
had that been in there, if, if there was something in there that so the government can do whatever it wants, it can regulate any business it wants, it can put any kind of regulation it wants? Of course not. This was a simple thing. The, the founding fathers didn't want, you know, a bunch of tariffs. They wanted it, you know, to be a free trade zone. And so the federal government was going to be there to make sure the states weren't just, you know, putting tariffs on one another, keep all the goods flowing smoothly. Very innocent uh, power that was granted to the government, completely abused by the Supreme Court. Obviously, if Amy Coney Barrett was going to be honest, the minimum wage law and a lot of other laws that have been declared constitutional, supposedly based on the Commerce Clause, none of these laws are constitutional and they should all be repealed and the country would benefit as a result of that. Here, I'll read the rest of uh, Article 1, Section 8. To establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States so they can set up bankruptcy courts to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coins and fix the standard of weights and measures. Now, by the way, coin money doesn't mean print money. It literally means to take money and make a coin out of it. Now, what is money? Well, Article 1, Section 10 says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin legal tender in payment of debt. So the Constitution provides that gold and silver is money because the only thing that can be money is gold and silver. Therefore, the only thing the federal government can coin would be gold and silver. Now, you might think, well, does that mean they can print money? No, it doesn't, because printing money was admitting bills of credit. The initial draft of the Constitution read Congress has the power to coin money and admit bills of credit. They struck it. They had a vote, and I think it was nine to two, and they said, no, we don't want the federal government to be able to admit bills of credit, so we didn't grant that power. Now, they didn't want the states to do it either. That's why Article 1, Section 10 denies, specifically says, that the states cannot admit bills of credit. So the states can't do it, and the federal government can't do it either because the states were denied the ability to do it, and the federal government was not given the ability to do it, so nobody could do it. So why do we have all this paper money? It's clearly unconstitutional. Now, again, they had to establish the Federal Reserve as a private company, because there's nothing in the Constitution that says private banks can't issue uh, bills of credit. So the Federal Reserve was created to do what Congress was legally prevented from doing, which was printing money. But of course, de facto, that's what it's doing, because the Federal Reserve doesn't act like a private business. It acts like it's part of the government. And so the government is using the Federal Reserve to get around the Constitution. And in fact, if you look at the earlier legal tender cases, and there were some Supreme Court legal tender cases during the Civil War, which was when Congress, for the first time, introduced paper money. We didn't have any paper money until the greenbacks came out during the Civil War. And when the Civil War was over, they, they discontinued it. So we didn't get paper money again until the Federal Reserve, right, in 1913. But there were some legal challenges to the federal government issuing paper money. And, of course, that paper money was actually backed by gold. It wasn't fiat like the paper money we have now. It was backed by gold, right, and redeemable in gold. But still, there was a constitutional challenge because that was not constitutional. And when the government argued for the constitutionality of the paper money that was issued during the war and that was backed by gold, the government didn't point to the monetary provision. The government did not try to claim that coin money meant to print money. They didn't even try to make that claim because that's how absurd it was. They actually looked to the necessary and proper clause, which I'm going to get to, and they said that because it was a war and the republic was in danger of falling apart, that the only way that Congress during a war 
could have implemented the powers that it did have was to print money. And so in a war, in the emergency of a war, Congress could do something that it couldn't ordinarily do in peacetime, which was printing money. So they had to look to the necessary and proper clause and not the monetary clause, because clearly it didn't give that the power. But of course, you know, you look at the textbooks today and they'll say coin money means they could do whatever they want. Coin money means print money, doesn't have to be backed by anything. It's all a bunch of nonsense. To provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States, right? Coin, not paper money, because there was no paper money to counterfeit. It was coins, right? Counterfeiting is a federal crime. To establish the post office and postal roads. To promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive rights to their respective writings and discoveries. In other words, patents, trademarks, they have the ability to do that. It's in the Constitution. To constitute tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court, which they've done, right? They have the Supreme Court and they can have the appellate courts and, and district courts. To define and punish piracy and felonies committed on the high seas and offenses against the laws of nations. See, piracy is a federal crime. You know, there are federal crimes in the Constitution, but all the other crimes that the federal government now prosecutes are unconstitutional, like kidnapping, for example. Kidnapping is a federal crime. Where in the Constitution is kidnapping a federal crime? It's not. So there are all sorts of crimes that have become federal crimes that are unconstitutional because there are specific crimes in the Constitution that are made crimes where the federal government is given jurisdiction over those crimes. But if it's not granted to it, then it doesn't have it. To declare war, grant letters of marquee and reprisal, and to make rules concerning the capture on land and water. To raise and support armies, but by no appropriation money shall be used for longer than two years. Right. To provide and maintain a navy. Now, it says nothing about an air force. That would be one of the one things that I would say you can give the government because obviously they didn't have airplanes uh, back when they wrote the Constitution. But clearly, had airplanes existed, the framers would have authorized an air force. And, and so I think that's one situation where you can say, hey, it doesn't specifically say that they can have an air force. Well, because they didn't have any planes, but clearly uh, they wanted the government to defend the nation with all the weapons at its disposal, all the military equipment that existed at the time. And so clearly uh, new inventions would fall within the intent of the framers. And so now you can have the Air Force. In fact, I would even say the Space Force uh, would be considered constitutional based on that original intent of the framers. To make rules for the government and the regulation of the land and the naval forces to provide for hauling forth the militia, to execute the laws of the union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. I mean, this is basically it. Then there's two more paragraphs, one that has to deal with national defense and the other one that has to deal with the District of Columbia and how they would oversee the nation's capital. That's it. Those are all the enumerated powers. That's all the government can do. And the section concludes with this uh, line. And this is the necessary and proper clause that has done a lot of damage to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in a department or office thereof. Now, this is called the Necessary and Proper Clause, 
And according to the people who want to ignore the Constitution and state that it's a living, breathing document, how they interpret this, and again, interpret meaning ignore, they think that this means the government can do whatever it wants so long as it's deemed to be necessary and proper, which, of course, it can't do. Right? If the government could do whatever it wants, what would be the whole purpose of Article 1, Section 8? Just say the government could do whatever it wants. If the government could do whatever it wants, why would James Madison, the founder, the father of the Constitution, tell the people of New York that the federal government's powers were few and defined? If you could do whatever you want, they're infinite and undefined. If you actually read what it says, it says to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, meaning these few powers that it's given in Article 1, Section 8, in order to implement these powers, right, it can do what's necessary and proper. That's why when the constitutionality of paper money was challenged, what the government said is we have the right to support a military. We're at war. We can't support the military with conventional taxation during this emergency. So we are going to print money that is redeemable in gold and silver because we deem that necessary and proper in order for us to fulfill our responsibilities during the emergency of a war. That's why, I mean, I, I read in here, one of the things that Congress can do is establish a post office, right? That's there. They can establish a post office. So what the necessary and proper clause would mean is that in order to have a post office, there may be some rules and regulations that will be necessary and proper to uh, create or impose in order for the government to operate the post office. So it can only pass laws that are necessary to carry out these powers that are expressly enumerated and granted to it in Article 1, Section 8, right? If the government could just do whatever they thought was necessary and proper, why would it even have to say that they can establish a post office? Why couldn't they just establish it anyway? Why couldn't they just say, hey, we're going to establish a post office because we think it's necessary and proper, right? Or, oh, we can establish a post office because it's in the general welfare, right? Because if you go back to the beginning of uh, Article 1, Section 8, it says that they can lay taxes for the general welfare. And you have a lot of people thinking, well, anything that they want to declare as the general welfare is the general welfare. That's not true. If a post office is in the general welfare, which it clearly is, right? I mean, you how would you argue that the post office is not for the general welfare? It's for anybody who wants to mail a letter. So the post office is clearly for the general welfare. You can argue whether or not it's effective, but the intent of the post office was to serve the general welfare. Well, if the post office was covered by the term general welfare, then again, why bother to say that they can establish a post office? I mean, why would you have anything? Once you just wrote uh, they can have taxes for the general welfare, why not just end Article 1, Section 8 right there? Why bother to say that Congress can have patents? I mean, obviously, patents and trademarks are to promote the general welfare. So why was the point of enumerating that? Why say that they can support an army? Of course, we need an army, right? That's for the common defense, right? It says right here that they can raise taxes to provide for the common defense. So then why did it say that they can have an army? They can have a navy because they had to say it because if they didn't say it, they couldn't do it, 
right? So this proves that the mere mention of the word general welfare doesn't mean that government can do whatever they want as long as they deem it in the general welfare. Uh, the necessary proper clause doesn't mean the government can do anything they want as long as they deem it necessary and proper. No, all they can do is what they're specifically authorized to do in Article 1, Section 8. And that's all they did for a long, long time, really, until Roosevelt, the government lived within the confines of the Constitution. So, you know, a minimum wage law is unconstitutional. I don't care if you think it's a good thing. I mean, we know clearly that the minimum wage is bad. And it hurts most the people that it's supposed to help because it makes it illegal for people to get jobs, particularly people with low skills. Uh, it's illegal for them to work. So the minimum wage has caused a lot of harm. And had we uh, abided by the Constitution, a lot of that harm would have been averted. But, you know, there's nothing that prevents the states from imposing their own minimum wages. State minimum wage laws are not unconstitutional. So if the legislatures of given states want a minimum wage, they're free to impose one. Just because the federal government can't do it doesn't mean that we can't have a minimum wage. So if you're in favor of the minimum wage, the Constitution doesn't preclude one. It just says it can't happen on the federal level. It has to happen on the state level. And if all 50 states want to adopt their own minimum wage, in fact, they all do, I don't think there's a single state in the union that doesn't have a minimum wage, so they all have minimum wages. But if a state doesn't want to have a minimum wage, that doesn't have to. And if you don't want to live in that state, well, you don't have to. But, you know, I would think if there was a state without a minimum wage, more people would go to that state because there'd be more employment opportunities in that state. That's what we want. We want the states competing against one another. We don't want the federal government imposing a one-size-fits-all law on all the states. And the same is true with all these programs. Look, Social Security is unconstitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the government can run a retirement system. But if states want to impose their own Social Security program, let them do it. There's nothing in the federal Constitution that prohibits that. Now, there may be something in their own state Constitution that prohibits it. But look, under our Constitution, the states have a lot of power, right? Because the states originally were like their own countries. That's what they were. You know, it was the United States are, right? The United States were a collection of sovereign countries that were bound by a common federal government. That federal government didn't have a lot of power. Yes, the Constitution conferred more power to the federal government than it enjoyed under the Articles in Confederation, uh, which the Constitution replaced, but still the power was vested in the states. So a lot of these programs that liberals like, the states are free to enact them. See, the problem is a lot of the states want to push off the cost of these programs on their neighboring states, right? If you have to pay the full cost yourself, then the programs are suddenly not as popular. But what makes them popular is when you think some other state is going to pay for it, right? And, but that's what the Constitution was written to prevent, some states from sapping the wealth from other states. But in any event, I just brought all this stuff up because I'm watching these hearings and the whole thing is a farce. You know, the only good thing I think about Coney Barrett is that she is less likely to authorize a new unconstitutional law. Like Obamacare almost got declared unconstitutional because this was something new, right? And obviously any Supreme Court justice that is honestly enforcing the Constitution would declare Obamacare unconstitutional. See, the reason the left is concerned is because they're worried that Conant Barrett will begin enforcing rather than ignoring the Constitution. 
What they want is a Supreme Court that will turn a blind eye to the Constitution and just allow any well-intentioned program uh, to be passed based on the fact that it's going to do good, right? Based on compassion. But the justices are not supposed to substitute their own compassion for the actual law. I mean, the irony of it all is that all these well-intentioned laws actually do harm. So if these judges actually understood economics and they wanted to strike down these laws based on economics, they would do it. But a lot of these judges don't understand economics. And, you know, being an economist is not a qualification for being a judge. They have to understand the law. And so what these guys have to do is even though they may believe that these well-intentioned programs are going to do good, they have a constitutional duty to strike them down anyway and then tell Congress, hey, you guys really like this new law. You amend the Constitution and then our hands will be tied. But based on the way the Constitution is written, this is unconstitutional. And we're not going to pretend that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, and we're not going to change the obvious meaning of the Constitution and contort it in such a way that it authorized clearly unconstitutional powers uh, being usurped by the federal government. But you know that's not what Congress wants. They want to know that all these Supreme Court justices will be rubber stamps to allow anything they want, right? And they're acting as if the real threat here is that women are going to lose their right to an abortion, which of course is not going to happen. And even under the situation where the Supreme Court actually says that the federal government can't interfere with the states, and that's what all the Roe v. Raid is about. It's about can the states impose their own restrictions on abortion? And what the federal government said is no, they can't, right? States don't have the power to place limitations on abortion. Even if that precedent was overturned, the issue goes back to the states. So how many states are going to outlaw abortion? I mean, most of these highly liberal states that are so worried about uh, an overturn of Roe v. Wade have nothing to worry about in their respective states. There's no way that California is going to impose these type of restrictions in California. There are very few states that would place the type of restrictions that the pro-life movement is really worried about. And to the extent that those states did, all that would mean would be if you happen to live in one of those states, you might have to go across the border. How hard is that? You know, I mean, it's not that difficult. If you live in a state and they have all these restrictions against abortion, okay, so the worst case scenario is you go to another state if that's what you want to do. They're not going to ban that. They're not going to make it illegal for you to drive across the state line. And then when you're in another state, I mean, look, if the drinking age and now, now, you know, the drinking age is pretty much 21 everywhere. But, you know, if you lived in a state where the drinking age was 18 and you went into a state where it was 21, you couldn't drink. In fact, in Puerto Rico, the drinking age is still 18. So anybody that lives in one of the states, you can come to Puerto Rico if you're 19 years old and you can drink, right? It's legal to drink in Puerto Rico. It doesn't matter that it's illegal to drink where you live. The laws that are in effect are where you happen to be. So if you go to a bar in Puerto Rico and you're 19, well, then you could drink legally. So if you uh, live in a state where there are certain restrictions on abortion and you don't want to follow those restrictions, you just go to a state 
that doesn't have those restrictions. And then you can live within those state laws. So this is all a red herring. Yes, this is a big issue that is a hot button issue with a lot of people. But the real threat here is the failure of the Supreme Court to protect Americans from government. That's our line of defense. The Supreme Court is there to make sure the federal government doesn't destroy our liberties, doesn't destroy our freedom. Our freedom and our liberties have been under assault by the government for generations. And the Supreme Court has been asleep at the switch. The Supreme Court has allowed the government to destroy our freedoms and our liberties by usurping powers that haven't been granted to it by the Supreme Court. That's why the Supreme Court is there. The Supreme Court is a check and balance. We have three branches of government, and the Supreme Court is our line in the sand. It's our last defense. If Congress passes an unconstitutional law and the government signs it, right, and it becomes law, the Supreme Court is supposed to strike it down. The Supreme Court is supposed to protect us, right? The Constitution is written to limit what the government could do, not to limit what the people could do. That law applies to the government. We have our own laws that are written that apply to us. And it's interesting, too, that none of the laws that apply to the people are up to interpretation, right? They all mean exactly what they say. It's only the law that applies to the government that supposedly is up for interpretation because that gives the government carte blanche to ignore those laws. We don't want the government to ignore the law. We're a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And what that means is we enforce the actual law. If the law means whatever the men in charge want to pretend that it means, then we're not a nation of laws. It's a sham. We're a nation of men. The only way to be a nation of laws is to apply the law, including the Constitution, based on the original intent of the people who wrote the law. And we don't have to guess their intent. The Constitution is pretty clear. And we have all sorts of examples of writings where the founding fathers told us in writing exactly what the Constitution means. And if we follow the letter of the Constitution and the explanations by the people who wrote it, it becomes very easy. Right? And almost everything the government is doing is unconstitutional. And that's what bothers uh, the left because their agenda, everything about their agenda is unconstitutional. But hopefully, and I've said before, a lot of the stuff that they want to do now is really uncharted territory. And so there is no requirement that the court continue with this bad precedent for new powers that the government wants to usurp. That is why the uh, Bidens don't want to talk about packing the court. That's why every time you ask Joe Biden, you're going to pack the court. I refuse to answer that question. It's almost like he's saying, I refuse to answer it on the grounds that it's going to incriminate me. He's like, he's taking the Fifth Amendment to the question, uh, are you going to pack the court? Oh, the, the, the voters don't have a right. Or he said that, you know, you'll know my decision on court packing after I'm elected, right? It's kind of like Nancy Pelosi. You got you to gotta, uh, pass the bill to see what's in it. You got to elect me to see what I stand for because he's afraid uh, to tell the truth. But the truth is the reason that they may want to pack the court is because everything they want to do is unconstitutional and a court that actually enforces the Constitution will strike all this stuff down. So even if they have the House and the Senate and even if they have the White House, a lot of this socialist agenda is going to die in the Supreme Court. And the only way to keep it alive is to pack that court with a bunch of cronies, to put a bunch of liberal ringers in there that will ignore the Constitution, allow this stuff, and then somehow, even if the Republicans ever gain control again and can repack the court, that now this new court is going to respect these 
decisions as bad as they were, because then those decisions will become precedent. 